0: If you remove Bitcoin, the entire space is half a trillion dollars, same size as Louis Vuitton, the parent company of Louis Vuitton. You could own all of ETH and all its alternatives and all of DeFi and all of stablecoins, or you could own a manufacturer of purses and champagne. And I think when you think about that comparison and you think about all the things Ryan said about all these incredible things that could happen, you see the scale of the opportunity and you're reminded just how early it is.
1: All right, and welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. The show is made possible thanks to our incredible sponsors, Chainalysis and Flipside. Uh, we are recording this episode on December 5th, and we have a great interview with Ryan and Matt from Bitwise. We get into all things of uh, the recent marketing happenings, and it's really interesting because they have this like unique TradFi perspective, yet they're still very in the weeds and aware of like what's going on in the depths of DeFi uh, and the broader crypto markets itself. Uh, but before we get into that, we got a brief little intro section for you guys. We're joined here today by Matt and Zero X Pibbles from the Blockworks Research team. Um, I think we should get right into it. And so we'll do a little hot seat, cool throne. Uh, Matt, I know you got a good one with uh, with Maple Finance. Can you tell us a bit about that one? Sure. So for those
2: that don't know, Maple Finance is an uncollateralized lending protocol on Ethereum and Solana. So what that means is that big hedge funds and market makers in the crypto space can go on Maple, request to take a loan. And, you know, many traders can put up Ether USDC collateral or Solana on Solana. And uh, in return, you know, they're they're going to net an APR or a yield on their, on their lent out funds this morning. They had a $31 million default by orthogonal trading. So orthogonal trading is one of these market makers, one of these hedge funds that borrows funds. So supposedly, they defaulted on $31 million in loans. This makes up about 30% of the total loans that Maple has ever originated. And there's some reports and speculation that the damage might be even worse, that there might be an additional 10 to $11 million in defaults that they're kind of uh, trying to maybe cover up or just because they haven't been due yet aren't included in that $31 million estimate. But there's another 10 or $11 million that have been lent out to these firms that have defaulted on their loans. So, Maple Finance is definitely in the hot seat today. It's not the first uncollateralized and undercollateralized lending problem we've seen this year. We first saw it with Three Arrows Capital and again with Alameda. And it just seems that this is a non sustainable way of lending, um, especially to crypto firms. The risk is just too high. There's also a little bit of speculation that Orthogonal actually had funds on FTX. So, they might have been part of the fallout from the the Sandbankman Fried FTX Alameda. Problems over the last few weeks, so yeah, just not a great day for Maple Finance or MPL holders, which is their token.
1: Does uh, does MPL act as a backstop to any any losses incurred by the protocol, or did they have like an insurance fund?
2: So cover providers, there's a uh, there's multiple parties in the Maple ecosystem, but cover providers are the first uh, the first stop against default, so they'll be the main ones that lose money. Maple stakers should be okay, but the MPL token is down, I believe. Last time I checked, about 20%, maybe even more so now. I'll double check real quick. Looks like it's about down 27% as of Monday, December 5th at one fifteen p.m. It could go down more from here and is definitely uh, not doing so hot. We'll see how how the ecosystem manages to, if they manage to rebound and kind of bounce back from this.
3: Yeah, undercollateralized lending is just like a tough problem to solve in crypto for like pretty obvious reasons. It's like you don't really have credit scores, you need default recourse. So that's that's a challenging problem to solve. And I commend like Maple for trying to do it. But this is like kind of, you know, we're seeing exactly why it's such a hard problem. But hopefully we can get it figured out in the near future.
4: Yeah, I think what's interesting here is that so you have like these credit underwriters who have been working with different crypto under collateralized or uncollateralized lending projects i think one of them is called like Cordera or Cordora. but when they're doing a credit check on a fund it it makes you wonder like what the hell you're even doing as a credit checker like if we saw the diligence on ftx investments or with like sequoia and ftx so like if i'm working for Cordera or Cordora, like I see a fund, it's like, oh, they have a lot of money. Looks good to me, A+. Plus. And then like something like this happens. Like there's there's too much stuff going on. Like it's way too easy for someone to misrepresent themselves as a fund to where like this uh, this credit underwriting thing is just not working out.
2: I think this is a problem that extends even beyond crypto and just un uncollateralized and undercollateralized lending in general it's not you know really a sustainable business uh it requires so much trust in your counterparties and it's just not the way it works today is not how it will function in the future i do have faith that at some point DeFi uncollateralized and undercollateralized lending will work but i don't think it's really going to be under collateralized i think it's just going to be collateralized with real world assets illiquid things so not just liquid you know tokens on chain but maybe things off chain and things that aren't very liquid but there has to be default recourse there has to be a way for the maple lenders to get their funds back in the case of a default like they saw today
1: yeah, and in a time when, you know, we've seen CFI collapse, it, it really is a, a gut shot to see some, some DeFi uh, acting a little, a little over their reach as well. Uh, and that kind of leads into the next hot seat we have here with Maxine Waters, who is the chairwoman of the U.S. House Committee uh, on Financial Services. And she put out a, a tweet that said... Uh, at SBF FTX we appreciate that you've been so willing and candid uh, in your discussions about what really happened at FTX your willingness to talk to the public will help the company's customers investors and others to that end we would welcome you to we welcome your participation in our hearing on the 13th so uh, really interesting to see a, a thank you message going out to SBF at this point, but maybe she's, yeah, I guess the optimistic view here would be she's like baiting him into coming, uh, into a hearing, uh, into which SBF responded to basically saying that I'm happy to testify, but I don't think I'll, I'll have all the information by the 13th, which is really in line with what he's been saying in this, uh, tirade of, of media tour he's doing, uh, saying, you know, I just don't have all the information. I don't have all the information. So. Uh, I guess at least he 's staying consistent, but you know to me this is just really frustrating to see uh, that we have like a, a you know an important regulator reaching out and saying thank you for being candid in your discussions that you robbed us all and you 're a fraudster essentially um, you know really kind of leans into the fact that it does seem like mainstream media really is the ones that are kind of highlighting him and holding his hand throughout all of this uh, and re- in reality you know c t and the rest of Uh, People in the depths of crypto really have like 99.9% more knowledge than than everybody else. It's it's interesting in this one. Yeah. As
3: the second largest Democratic donor, it's not really a a surprise. Um, I don't really like to steer into politics too often, but yeah, I mean, the, the truth is in the money behind it, so... Not really surprising, but yeah, it's a little bit disappointing to see like all the outside people who don't really understand what happened like make their remarks and and kind of put Sam on this pedestal. So hopefully, like more more truth comes out over the coming weeks and and he gets you know appropriately prosecuted.
2: Ditto on Sam's take. Um, I forget who said it on Twitter, but that SBF wasn't the biggest donator. he was the biggest investor in these. Uh, Politicians, and I thought that was a really good take, and it's just, yeah, can't forget
3: that.
4: Agreed. The first thing I thought when I saw that tweet is how much did he just wire her?
3: I can take it over for uh, the uh, cool throne. I've got Circle. They uh, <clears throat> they announced that they terminated their business proposition with Concord Acquisitions Corporation to take the company public via SPAC, uh, at least for the time being. Not really a huge surprise given the market conditions, but you know Circle is absolutely printing money. They've got like 35 billion dollars of short-term treasuries, and in a uh, rising interest rate environment, they're just they're printing. They're they're making like two. $275 million a quarter or something like that, a little bit over a billion dollars annualized. And stable coins is one of those things that continues to gain adoption and the amount of reserves that they're going to have is going to continue to grow more than likely because it really is one of crypto's killer use cases. So uh, yeah, pretty easy, cool thrown with, with Circle.
1: Yeah, one interesting thing for me here is, you know, the ever circulating tether FUD is that it's not backed one to one. Um, and a lot of that stemmed from those low rate environments where, you know, they had all these deposits they were holding and you know naturally you'd be wanting to try to generate a, a return off the dollars you're holding uh, in in exchange for these usdt tokens um and with this rising interest rate environment you see like someone like circle uh who has you know always been a little more transparent into their their holdings that back their uh, usdc token and there you can see now the the amount of revenue that they're generating uh, in this rising interest rate environment it, it creates like a incentive to actually be backing uh your your token with one to one deposits held in you know the most what's perceived as the most uh risk free asset or u s treasuries um so it kind of like is i think it's a net positive for the ecosystem that we're kind of like trending in this direction and you know with the uh continued battle at at tether's peg you know it's it's good to see uh that you know it probably is a little healthier than everyone seems to think
2: it's kind of crazy to see that you know, MakerDAO is getting one and a half percent APR on their USDC, custodying it with Coinbase. And meanwhile, USDC is getting something like two and a half or two point six percent APR. Um, and that's not even across all their funds. Obviously, they need to keep a huge portion of their funds liquid so that people can redeem their USDC back to back to USD. But uh yeah, I just think it's kind of crazy to see that disparity between DeFi and C Another
4: cool throne we're seeing this week is definitely Chainlink over the past like 30 days it's been doing really well. I think it's up like 30% off the bottom. And this is because of Chainlink staking, which starts on, I think, December 6th for early access. And then it opens to the public December 8th. And this is a pretty significant advancement in Chainlink, being that it's so important to crypto and DeFi overall. like Chainlink Kind of runs the entire crypto ecosystem, and you know, keeping track of prices and helping with liquidations, etc. So I, I think it's a really good a good month for link holders who have been loyal since day one. Um, I I really like the idea of Chainlink starting to actually benefit a lot more from how much the crypto ecosystem depends on it.
3: Yeah, strong agree there. I think this is like pretty huge for the link Marines. And and like you said, they've been super loyal for, for years, literally since the very beginning. Uh, I also saw that they have like a build program where basically um, projects that are just starting to bootstrap and maybe can't afford their services, they're able to kind of make a long-term service agreement in exchange for uh, node operators providing these Oracle services in exchange for future protocol revenue or even native token payment. So I thought that was kind of neat. I guess the, the one rebuttal I have is just things like uh, Eigenlayer where you're you know introducing restaking staked ETH I feel like that makes a lot more sense for something like a chain link just because, um, I mean, one ETH is worth more, but two it's, you know, powering the ETH ecosystem. So I just feel like there's better synergy there, but maybe I'm not exactly sure on the design of, of Eigen but maybe it's possible to have like a, a two token staking model where you could have link and ETH securing, securing chain link, but that'll be something I'm watching going forward.
2: Yeah, people sometimes forget just how important Chainlink is, DYDX, GMX, so many protocols. MakerDAO, a lot of these protocols cannot function without having Chainlink you know, having a proper mechanism for working correctly. And it's uh, it's just super important. So it's good to see them decentralizing and kind of maybe even moving away from the Link Marine meme. And like, they were the biggest, probably the biggest winner of DeFi Summer 2020. So it's nice to see, you know, actual value accrual fundamental technology building uh, kind of what it's in my opinion, a little better than the memes that we saw for the last few years. One thing I was thinking about, and this is like totally
4: on the the far end of the spectrum for like speculation but how they had like the uh, the partner programs it looks like what would be really cool is if someone built like a bribes model on link staking so like you you stake your link with you know in favor of this project or you help them bootstrap something it'd be really cool if you had like this whole bribe ui set up and everyone could keep track of like what tokens they're getting airdropped
1: <laughs> that's super interesting. I can I know you've been digging into the uh the aura and balancer combo, so that that's funny you bring that up. But yeah, I know that, that makes a ton of sense and you know, we kind of see the shift towards making your token more valuable, which is something I think we're all a little bit excited about and getting away from these more useless tokens. Um so yeah, even in the even in the depths. Uh, of what was, you know, a busy week. It, it, things are still calm calmed down a little bit, but there's still a lot going on. And uh, that's the beauty of crypto. Even when you expect it to be a boring week, it, it never, never does that for you. Um, and actually last week we saw uh, the across bridge have their, their token airdrop. Uh, so sponsored by Flipside here, we have a nice little dashboard built uh, to kind of review exactly what it was that, that went down and leading into this, this token airdrop. Uh, And then additionally, kind of how we've seen bridge volumes change in that light. And so if we look at these two charts here, uh, mostly focus on the charts on the left and for the listeners rather than the viewers, uh, we have a comparison between hop, synapse, and across bridges. Uh, And you can see the total value bridged in dollars as well as the number of bridging transactions. Uh, and so if we look at this chart on the bottom here the number of bridging transactions uh, you'll see starting in about early october mid-october we see a huge uptick in across bridge transactions uh, yet not a massive volume uptick uh, in dollars so that's generally a good sign that users are like sibling uh, transactions in order to uh, simulate usage of the bridge in, in hunting an airdrop uh, and then following the airdrop in early november uh, mid-november you see that um that's significantly dropped off in the number of transactions and and volume has kind of tapered off as well uh, so you know it, it is interesting to kind of see that dynamic play out and if we look at the actual airdrop itself um, interestingly enough only about four and a half percent of the acx airdrop has been claimed um, and of that claimed portion it looks like about 36 percent of claimers are still holding their tokens um, so a pretty high percentage of, uh, airdrop recipients or claimers are, have dumped their token, but only a small number, uh, has actually claimed that token and they did a pretty interesting, uh, airdrop mechanism where they actually airdropped you LP tokens, uh, and Pibbles. I know you, uh, you were a recipient, recipient of this, album. I'm curious how your experience went with this.
4: Yeah, it was the worst airdrop experience I've ever had. It, it took me like an hour to figure it out and I had to ask so many people and like across all my chats everyone's like, How the hell do I claim this? So it, it was just a ton of work. You had to like claim it on a cross. Then you had to unstake it on a cross because it was in some balancer pool. And then I think you had to do like a third transaction somewhere else to like withdraw it from Balancer and then you could finally sell it. And I mean by the time that happened, you know, it's already it's down fifty percent from when you actually claimed it. Um, I also just think bridge tokens are like not a good value investment at all because you know bridge tokens they they represent governance and like cool, maybe they can represent fee share in the future. but the reality of bridges is everyone wants to be the fastest bridge, and everyone wants to have the lowest fee. so it's it's kind of a race to the bottom for any bridge token because they're just going to try to be the cheapest and that means no revenue to token holders. Like I don't even know if you're a seed investor how you actually benefit from investing in any of this.
3: Yeah, this takes me back to my point with Eigenlayer too, like in terms of infrastructure, I just feel like it makes so much more sense to use something like Eigenlayer instead of having your own native token. But then again, that's kind of where the incentives come into play. Everyone wants to launch their own token and and make some money off of what they're building. So I guess uh, it's no surprise that across launched their own token.
2: I got to disagree with the not liking bridge tokens, obviously, my opinion. <clears throat> but like we've seen Synapse make, I think, something like 18, 19 million dollars in protocol revenue over the last year. Um, don't quote me on that. Maybe it's more like 16, 17, whatever, somewhere in that range. That's a lot of money in protocol revenue. And although the token has no actual value accrual today, I think as we see cross chain narrative, um, I guess, sorry, I'm gonna take it back. The multi-chain narrative continue to gain momentum that these bridge tokens as they continue, maybe like in the future give real yield back to the token holders or something like that, that they could actually be solid uh, a solid place to keep an eye on.
1: Yeah, and you know, as a Thor chain bull, I'm really excited about the uh, the economic design that, that that team kind of used their token in, in how they use it within the economic design. And it really plays into uh, the security mechanism as well in the proof of bond consensus. Um, Pibbles, I saw you laugh and you've heard me say that's just way too many times. But um, yeah, no, it, it, I guess that just goes back to kind of what we were talking about with Link, right? Like useless tokens, I think are gonna become quickly outdated, um, but yeah, no, that's a good point on the race to the bottom on zero fees as well.
3: Yeah, as we uh, transition over to the interview, I wanted to take a second to thank our wonderful sponsor, Chainalysis. They're one of the leading crypto analytics providers and are helping bring the tools we need to legitimize our industry. They enable investors to track funds on-chain with ease, and they also offer some awesome research that's available for free on their website. We can link that in the show notes. Uh, They also offer some really cool courses that go really deep into all things crypto, and it's definitely worth checking out. Chainalysis is building the tools that our industry needs, so be sure to look at them in the show notes
1: and as always a special shout out to flipside who has the most comprehensive on-chain data uh, that really gets the gives you the ability to kind of dive in uh, and work smarter you know the ability to instantly query data uh, for free of course and browse some of these elite dashboards built by their team a uh, special shout out to misa ghlb who actually built the across uh, dashboard we were looking at today um and you know if getting into dashboarding is something you want to do be sure to check out our show notes because Flipside uh has a special uh, bounty posted to earn up to $75 in USDC uh, so check out the show notes we'll have that listed there uh and without further ado we'll jump straight into the interview with Matt and uh Ryan from Bitwise
3: all righty we're here with Ryan and Matt from Bitwise we're uh, really excited to have them on the the podcast have a conversation we've talked a couple times on Uh, off the record so it's it's nice to get a recording here uh thanks for joining us guys thanks for having us
5: we're excited to be here yep happy to be here
3: all right now the question everyone is talking about ftx alameda what's your guys' take on the whole situation you guys kind of come from a more unique perspective in the in the crypto landscape so i'm sure people would love to hear your thoughts there matt i can hand it to you first (laughs) sure
0: sam i mean i'm exhausted by the situation i think most of us are exhausted by the situation i feel like uh this guy stole like six to 12 months of my life. Uh, uh, and I, I, you know, I come off much better than than, than other people who he stole money from. I think it's a classic uh, fraud. I know we've been listening to him explain himself away and try to position it as sort of uh, incredible mismanagement uh, because that's a, a lighter issue. But I think if you abstract back, he ran an exchange. People trust him with his money. Instead of honoring that trust, he took that and gave it to an affiliated hedge fund that then made terrible bets and lost it all. I think it's important to keep the big picture perspective from it. In terms of what it means for crypto, there are a lot of histrionic takes out there, that it's the end of crypto, that it will set it back for decades. Crypto's only been around for like a decade, so that's quite a statement to make. Um, I think it's a six to nine month setback. It's definitely objectively bad in the short term. I think it'll lead to some cleanup and lead to some regulation that will be positive, but it's definitely temporary. It doesn't change anything fundamental about most crypto assets. I think you could argue it raises some existential questions around Solana. That's an interesting thing to debate. But for Bitcoin, Ethereum, Cosmos, you know, the DeFi sector, it's a blip and will recover, but it is an annoying blip, uh, and a painful blip and one that we'll be, we'll be dealing with for a while still, I think. I think one thing that happens in crypto, if you look over multiple cycles, is we get these huge bull periods and then we get over our skis and then we don't make the same mistake twice. So like 2011 to 2013, huge bull run up, then Mt. Gox collapsed and we built institutional quality custodians. 2015 to 2017, Ethereum and a huge run up and then fraudulent ICOs. And then we pivoted away from that after the reset and built real applications, DeFi, NFT, stable coins. Right. This was a huge, uh, huge bull period where we uh, got into lending and we raised enormous venture capital. We're going to pivot from that and have better, uh, better centralized exchanges, better decentralized exchanges and less excess in terms of lending and activity. And I think, you know, we, we do seem as an industry, even if it's slower than we wish to learn from the past issues. I think that's what I see when I look at those pullbacks. And I think we'll learn from this one, as as Ryan was pointing out.
1: Yeah, I strongly agree with all that and this feels like something that's like, you know, a pain in our side now, but in in the end, it'll end up being this like healthy um, um, trimming of the fat, if you will, Uh, and we can move on from here. And I feel like that's, you know, I feel like a lot of the people who pay true attention to what's going on in these markets and what's going on in DeFi kind of like lean towards feeling that way. Uh, But I'm curious, how do people like traditional finance folks, how do, do they see something like this and, you know, are they like a little more accustomed to this happening? You know, we've seen like an MF Global before, we've seen a Bernie Madoff. Uh, is this something that they can kind of like grasp and understand a little, a little easier than something like, a, say, uh, a Terra Luna unwind where, you know, someone says there was a $40 billion unwind and, you know, it's pretty hard for them to grasp the concept of like an algorithm stable, algorithmic stable coin just right out of the gates, right?
0: It's so true. It's so funny that you mentioned that because for crypto Twitter, this is like this existential blow up. We're having trouble reconciling this person that we put on a pedestal with the reality and we're all feeling let down. And like, why didn't we diligence it? When we talk to financial advisors and family offices, they're like, yeah, this, this 29 year old was running an offshore exchange in the Bahamas with a hedge fund right next to it. Like, we've seen this story a million times before. Of course, he's just, a fraud. Of course, he blew up. It's Bernie Madoff. It's John Corzine. Um, they've been faster from my perspective to, to contextualize what it really is, which is just a fraud. It points out things we need to correct in the crypto ecosystem, but they didn't have the sort of existential woe is me that I saw on crypto Twitter. Uh, and it's been funny to, to see that. That doesn't mean they don't want to see it cleaned up. They don't worry about contagion. They're intelligent. But they they put it more in the box of what it is, which is um, which is fraud. And as you as you said, Dan, they've seen that before in traditional markets, so they know that it doesn't mean the end of stocks or the end of options. And in this case, it doesn't mean the end of crypto.
5: Yeah, I, I thought there was an interesting nuance from my personal life uh, over the Thanksgiving holiday, where uh, I had the experience. Like I think we all anticipated that there would be a lot of talk about the FTX. Uh, and everything going on uh, since it has being covered so much by the media. And because, I don't know, generally, uh, when I, when we go home for these type of events, I think the non-crypto enthusiasts are skeptical of crypto, and, and often those in the industry find themselves kind of you know, back against the fence. Um, I thought it was really interesting. However, in some of the conversations I had with friends and family who aren't in the space full-time like we are, or maybe aren't even in traditional finance, uh, like the financial advisors and, and investors like Matt was just talking about, and they seem to understand pretty quickly that this was just your typical kind of financial fraud or, um, you know, they can relate it more to the Bernie Madoff and to the those types of like fraudulent events and can understand that quicker than I feel like they've been able to with some of these other elements like 3AC blow ups and all that, even though ultimately we are kind of talking about the same thing when we look at, at 3AC and the implosion of those funds and then the ongoing contagion that ultimately you know probably led to FTX in the implosion here and so i just thought it was interesting that this even though uh this was a huge company the way that it happened and um it happened so quickly that i think the main that the, the traditional public is is following along with that line of thought uh, which is great
3: yeah Strong agree there. It's unfortunate that they had like such a prominent like brand in terms of advertisements and everything like that, because everyone knows about it. But strong agree with you there, Ryan and Matt, like it could have been a lot worse from the perspective of the Thanksgiving conversations where people actually seem to understand it a little bit more than I would have guessed going into it. But in the same vein, you know, you can talk about how people from traditional finance or maybe even just average, you know, people who are observing the industry are looking at it, but how do you feel regulators are looking at this? Do you think this is kind of opening the door for, uh, kind of blanket regulation where they bundle up DeFi and CFi together? Or do you think they're like, okay, let's get centralized exchanges, you know, regulated and and properly monitored before we dive into the DeFi space?
0: Oh, wow. What a great question. I, I think, um, I think the first thing you're going to see in regulation is regulation around stablecoins. Uh, stablecoins are like this third rail regulatory topic in Washington uh, because there's so much like money market funds, and there's been so much historical regulation and worry about money market funds and their intersection with the 2008 crisis. That I think that train was already moving pre-FTX, and I think that'll be the first thing that happens. I don't, I don't know that we're going to get sort of an omnibus pan-crypto regulation. I'd love to know what Ryan thinks. I suspect they'll chop it up and try to figure out something for spot crypto exchanges. And the DeFi stuff, I think, will be harder. Uh, that's a harder regulatory nut to solve. I don't even know, um, at a nuanced level, all the, the ways I feel about the different regulatory challenges in the DeFi market. But I think it's pretty clear some of the steps we could take on centralized exchanges to improve things segregating customer assets from exchange assets um you know more traditional broker-dealer stuff being more clear about what's a security and what's a commodity i think those are things we can work through i think the DeFi stuff will take longer but i, I don't know what ryan thinks he's maybe more of an expert here than i am
5: i, I agree that yeah no i agree with your take on that matt I, I think really regulators are in the same boat as venture capitalists that we were kind of talking about earlier where they they were getting really comfortable, a lot more comfortable with crypto and and, and um, allocating you know resources to crypto, or even uh, even associating their their brand, if you will, like with crypto. And so, obviously, we saw that with with a lot of um, you know well known regulators and lawmakers uh, having meetings with with SBF and the FTX team. And so, I do think that this is like a this is unfortunately like a two steps back, one step forward for regulation because. There's now like the the uh, the lack of risk associated with with embracing crypto as a regulator because you would yet have the evangelists of the community, uh, the crypto community and, you know, all the capital that is in crypto kind of behind supporting your cause. I think that is now overshadowed by uh, the negativity that they're going to face and the backlash that they're facing with um, with the FTX and SBF debacle. I, I mean, FTX wasn't a uh, a US-based company. And so there is the whole debate around like what could US regulations have done here to to help or to stop it. But I think what it shows is that without proper regulations and without the clarity that like we have all been asking for for, uh, for a long time, that it's letting these bad actors find their way into the industry and actually flourish in a very, very uh, negative way. And so um, I do think that I was I was pretty bullish on the regulatory environment, I would say, a month ago uh, with I was I was looking forward to the midterms and for uh, politicians to embrace crypto. And I definitely don't feel as excited about it now. And I'm I'm worried that um, it's actually swung in the other direction where now the support goes for those politicians and regulators and lawmakers that are anti crypto. And so that's where I think the two steps back kind of kind of comes in, comes in.
3: Yeah, I feel like the elephant in the room, too, is like the still unfolding situation with Genesis and DCG. I felt like people were starting to think maybe we're out of the doghouse there and it's not as bad as we thought. But now more information came out today saying, you know, maybe it's not as good as we thought. So do you guys have any insight into that perspective and and what kind of backlash would happen there if they did blow up? Yeah,
0: Uh, I mean, I would start by saying the framing is correct because the, the way these uh, contagions happen is it doesn't matter if the next domino is smaller, right? If some third rate exchange buckles tomorrow or some lending platform that we've never heard of buckles tomorrow, that doesn't matter at all. It only matters if the if the next domino is bigger. And that's why people are so focused on, on Genesis and DCG. It's one of the few other dominoes that could fall. It's like them, Binance, Tether, then you're out, right? That's all you have. Um, uh, you know. I, I think it's hard, it's hard from an outsider to say that they're, uh, what, what's exactly is going to happen in this space. What is clear is they have an extremely valuable core business, right? We do know that, uh, Grayscale, which is a, you know, a friendly competitor to Bitwise, um, is a legitimate business and we can all model their revenues because we know what assets they have and we know what they're earning. And that's not, that's not going away and that will help cushion any blow. Um, I think they'd have to have made a series of incredible missteps to really get to the point where there's more than like a haircut that we're talking about. And I think a haircut is something that crypto can handle, Um, but I don't have any special insight. Maybe Ryan has has greater depth. Um, I don't think we're going to see the sort of catastrophic failure there that we saw in FTX or that continues this domino contagion.
5: Yeah, the contagion story, I feel like has kind of calmed down a bit over the past few weeks. It was really interesting this time around. uh, This time around, being like the second crypto credit crisis that we have faced this year, um, where if you look back at 3AC and Luna um, and the events that happened there, there was like many weeks following the actual uh, implosion of those funds before the contagion was fully kind of known. And obviously, it it actually was months until it was fully known because here we are today, uh, still kind of reeling from the effects of it, and so. I thought it was a little strange that um, a lot of a lot of the conversation I was I was seeing and and hearing from people was that they thought that the damage was done kind of on you know day day zero or day one or two of of the FTX implosion that would have been I think two two to three weeks ago at this point point. Um, and it just doesn't a doesn't make sense because because traditional markets don't unwind at the same speed that crypto markets unwind and so um, yes the on chain the the on-chain impact could be felt right away but clearly there's so much going on off-chain that um that it would likely take a long time for that all to be shaken out so all that to say i guess um here we are a few weeks later and i do feel like a lot of the contagion has has, story has kind of calmed down and people are are less uh concerned or maybe think it's, it's priced in but that's where i start to get weary again and like you were saying with new news coming out i mean um matt and i were talking about this where everywhere there's been smoke these past few weeks, like there has been fire. And uh, so while the yeah, Genesis is a very strong business, Galaxy uh, is a very profitable business uh, with strong cash flows. Um, there's clearly been some black swan events uh, or, or, or what, what have, however you want to categorize it here. And I am a little bit concerned that we haven't seen the end of it. Yeah, I, I think that's a reasonable concern. You know, there, there are other places that I might raise more,
0: like I would think I would be thinking about Tether I would be thinking about Binance if I had to go into my dark conspiracy hole theory. Uh centralized offshore entities haven't fared particularly well in the fallout of this. But um yeah, I, I think a lot of it is also already priced into the market. Uh so so. Um, I, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes.
1: Yeah. And so if we kind of pivot into kind of like what's left from here and, uh, you know, one of those onshore and regulated entities is Coinbase, who, who finds themselves in a pretty uh, exciting position, right? So uh, with FTX out of the p- picture, that kind of leaves Binance and, and Coinbase floating towards the top of that uh, centralized exchange list. And uh, Coinbase finds itself with a pretty good relationship with Circle and USDC continues to be pushing up the, uh, the market cap rankings with USDC. And so, you know, Matt, you put out a pretty good tweet a while ago, kind of look, take a look at uh, Coinbase's uh, business model and whether or not, you know, how tied they are to the commissions that they generate on their on their platform. Uh, so I'd love for you to kind of dive into that, that thesis you have around Coinbase.
0: Yeah, I think it's one of the most phenomenal companies in the U.S. And the fact that it's so aggressively on sale right now is is enormously interesting. Um, the point I was making, you know, Charles Schwab, obviously a dominant broker in the U.S., launched his business in the 70s by offering discounted transaction fees. And one of the classic criticisms of Charles Schwab at the time was that those fees were going to go to zero. And so your margins are going to go to zero and your business will be worth nothing. But if you look at the evolution of their business over time, they've always been able to extract about 30 basis points of all client assets, 0.3%. But the way they've done it has varied. At first, it was through commissions, and then it was through having money market accounts that they paid sub- national interest rates but they forced customers into them and then it was launching their own etfs and then it was charging other companies to sell mutual funds to schwab customers the point is if you have a bunch of people with money who've entrusted your organization to hold that money you can find ways to monetize that besides the most basic way of engaging in transactions that's just a way of bringing people onto the platform and if you look at coinbase that's the same criticism people level Either their fees are too high and they're going to come down or Uniswap is going to eat their lunch, right? Those are like the two criticisms for people who assume crypto will persist. But if I look at it, I look at their user counts, which have just gone, uh, you know, uh, amazingly upward. If you look back at this time in the past cycle, there were maybe 20 million accounts. Now there are 100 million if you look at their assets on platform, how many assets are on the platform, that has been nowhere but up and to the right. And then the point I was making on this blog is you're already starting to see it. They're having huge growth in their subscription and services business, uh, even as their core transactional business sort of treads sideways. What are they doing? They're doing things like staking, they're doing things um, uh, with, with actions around crypto assets, uh, and they're able to charge a higher fee from that. I think I think it's the most important exchange in the world. I think it has the largest assets on platform. If you look at all the proof of reserves that have come up, Coinbase has more assets on platform than any other entity in the world. And I think holding that customer base is just enormously valuable over time. So, you know, you could tell me that the transaction fee on Coinbase is going to go to zero and I would still be bullish on their business because I think they will find ways through staking, through lending, through margin deals, through allowing companies to sell their funds on their platform, to expanding into NFTs, to doing other things to monetize those users. And I think people are looking at the wrong metrics uh, if they're looking at short-term revenues and and transaction costs.
1: If you can't tell, we love data here at Blockroots Research, and Chainalysis, the leading blockchain analytics company, shares this passion with us. We use data to extract alpha and find the next thing coming in DeFi, but Chainalysis is doing the gritty work and building trust in blockchains. To onboard the next trillion dollars of capital into the industry, we need to grow safe consumer access to cryptocurrency and promote more financial freedom with less
3: risk. Chainalysis has some of the most comprehensive and reliable data in the space, and they use this data to power a full suite of their solutions that can be utilized by industry professionals. Best-in-class training and certifications are also led by Chainalysis and some of the brightest minds in the space. If you haven't heard of Chainalysis, you got to check them out, and we'll link to them in the show notes. Yeah, Ryan as the more D5 focused guy, I'm curious, do you think like a revenue avenue for Coinbase would kind of be, you know, being the front end for retail users for D5 potentially? I know they have their Coinbase wallet extension and, and a lot of people like that, at least friends that I have who are just kind of like dipping their toes in the water. How do you view that?
5: Yeah, I agree. I think Coinbase has a really compelling offering as as like a non, you know, in the weeds kind of um crypto savvy person who who doesn't want to necessarily uh, have to I don't know, like, deal with MetaMask and a ledger and all that stuff, like, every time they make a transaction, uh, Coinbase, the app, is a a great place to go. You obviously have a lot of restrictions on what you can do compared to if you were just self-custodying your own assets. But I think the trade-off there um, with the ease of of use and with being able to connect your bank account, like, seamlessly, and and honestly, the comfortability of a U.S.-based company, um, I think, gives a lot of users users uh more comfort than than doing what we all do, which is plug that you know flash drive into our computer and and, and uh, toggle toggle transactions on and off. And so uh, so yeah I, I, I like Coinbase a lot. I think that it's likely that many that, that, that users are already accessing DeFi through Coinbase um, in the sense that uh, I wouldn't be surprised if if Coinbase to a certain extent is like routing trades through um through decentralized exchanges to get better pricing on certain assets where there might be like more liquidity than on the coinbase exchange uh and you know with their earned programs it's likely they're doing something something similar uh allocating you know funds to DeFi and earning some yield there so i do think that that more and more uh we'll see coinbase being a front end to DeFi. i think it's really cool that they also offer these other like uh um kind of web three native features, like they're trying to build a decentralized app store and they, they offer you know Coinbase wallet, which someone could use to go access Uniswap and like avoid using the Coinbase platform if they wanted to. Uh, but I just think that goes to show that Coinbase seems to be a positive actor in the space, right? They've always kind of um, been pushing for the, the greater good of the industry. And uh, it's not a surprise that many people are, are finding themselves on Coinbase, um, especially with everything going on with, with FTX, with, with Gemini, uh and in across the industry but
0: yeah just 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 enormous just to put I would just add the growth there is just phenomenal uh which people overlook if you look back to the previous cycle they've 10xed monthly transacting users versus where they were in 2018 they've 10xed uh assets on platform verified users have 5xed uh, this is an enormous growth engine. And uh, as Ryan said, they're leaning into straddling that line between CFI and DeFi. Um, yeah, you, in, in, in crisis bear markets, you always throw the baby out with the bathwater. And a thing investors can do is try to figure out what the baby is and then hold on to that dearly. And I think this is one of those examples. Uh, where you have that kind of opportunity
1: right on yeah it's it's hard to hard to argue anything else than their reputation only strengthening over the last couple weeks and you know i think brian armstrong has done a pretty 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 good job kind of being in the media and putting some positive statements out and kind of just like reinforcing uh, you know, where this industry is, and I'm still definitely bullish on the idea of centralized custodians uh, kind of being that intermediary for users. I mean, in the long run, I just think it's too too complicated for the average person to come in and custody their own assets, and maybe that needs to improve as well. Um, but if we take a look at kind of more of like what Bitwise itself is doing, right, you know, have been one of the, the leading and fastest growing asset managers. I uh, have a series of publicly traded uh, funds as well as some private funds as well. You know, I'd love to kind of think about, you know, what, when, you know when you're building one of these new funds, like what are your What's your thought process for how you create this fund and, and how do you include certain assets in it? Uh, and maybe it'd be better if we like dove into a specific fund, right? So I think BITW is uh, the, the Bitwise 10 uh, crypto index fund. And I'd love to kind of hear your take on how you thought about going around building that portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate that. Yeah, BITW, it holds 10, the 10 largest assets,
0: but not actually. Uh, if you went to coinmarketcap.com and looked at their list, we'd be at asset 21. You know, what we are trying to build there was a product that served a role for people who aren't, you know, all in on crypto all the time, which is how do I make one investment and ensure that if crypto does well over 10 years, I'll be allocated to the most successful assets, right? Not pick Solana or pick Ethereum or pick Bitcoin, but have broad based exposure. So we built this index that's diversified It rebalances every month. So as new assets emerge, they enter the index. You gain exposure to Cosmos, you lose exposure to EOS um, as those, those shifts happen. And that's a beautiful thing. And then what we're really proud of is we built in these screens because this is a frontier emerging market. And the goal is to screen out assets that have significant hidden risks. So an example of an asset that we screened out was Luna. Another example of an asset that we screened out was FTT. Both of these were top 10 assets at one point in time but they didn't make it into the index. And so we have about seven screens uh, that we use. The the, the biggest ones, we screen for assets that we think might be found uh, of having undue risk of being in violation of federal securities laws. So being on the wrong side of the line, that keeps a lot of assets out. We also look at the fundamental token economic design of a given asset, that's what kept Luna out. Um, And then we look at things like liquidity and and supported US custodians. We're a really conservative crypto asset manager, which is really annoying during raging bull markets. Uh, but feels good at times like this because we have avoided some of those blowups. That doesn't mean we'll avoid them all in the future, but it's nice that we sidestepped, you know, those two, uh, among others that we 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 don't allocate to, and we continue not to allocate to. Happy to talk about those if there's interest.
3: Yeah, that's super impressive. That's like something you can definitely hang your hat on uh, in light of everything that we literally just talked about, um, Ryan. I'm curious, what's a day in your life at Bitwise like? What do you do uh, in helping there?
5: Yeah, you know, uh, no day is really ever the same here at Bitwise. It's one of the things that I really enjoy about uh, working in the space. Though, um, we spend a lot of our time focusing on education, uh, and and that's both internal education with making sure that. Uh, our sales and investor relations team and kind of the, you know, the company's up to date on everything going on in the crypto markets and uh, the regulatory front, the the macro uh, economy. Yeah. And, and the crypto economy specifically. Um, and then we also spend a lot of time either writing and producing content, like for our uh, customers, which are the financial advisors, hedge fund managers, RIA, uh, you know, investment professionals. And that can be, that can be anything from like, how to DeFi, or, or or how what is decentralized finance for institutional investors, or um, how to think about NFTs as an asset class. So really, kind of one on one level education a lot of times, and then we go on and have conversations with with those advisors and with the uh, the money managers. And I I really enjoy doing that um, because you kind of you get to see where the uh, where kind of like the the broader financial uh, industry is on adopting crypto because. Most of at this rate, like most of my friends are either diehard into crypto and that's all we talk about when we hang out or they're so tired of me talking about crypto and they don't care about it at all that like it's it's just they don't want to hear about it. And so it's really interesting to to actually be able to see um, and hear the conversations and the questions that were being asked. And and honestly, there's some times where the financial advisors are so deep down into the weeds of crypto. They're talking about, you know, some some token that like none of us have ever heard of or something. And it's. You do wonder like where did they where did they even come across that one um but yeah we spend a lot of time just kind of bridging that gap uh and so i would say education is probably the biggest thing we do um like I said, internal and external and then we do a lot of research on um on product and and kind of product strategy and just the space the space in general and i focus specifically on DeFi, uh but yeah we cover we cover everything like i said nfts bitcoin uh emerging l1s l2s so it, it really is different day to day, but uh, it's been really fun, you know, growing with the company for the past year and a half. Uh, and, and as the industry kind of grows and builds these new sectors out, we get to kind of follow it.
1: Yeah, that's it's uh, painfully relatable on your friends, either loving or hating crypto and uh, whether okay. or not they're tired of hearing you talk about it. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but I'm curious, as uh, that cohort of uh, clients that you have, right, has their interests or their needs, like, have you seen a shift in that over maybe the last six to 12 months at all? Or is it kind of you know been a consistent interest in like maybe the, the larger assets like the Bitcoin and Ethereum's out there?
0: Yeah, great question. I'd say first, you know, one thing that's been really true over the last 12 months is that category is growing rapidly. So our number of clients, our client count doubled over the last 12 months. And we've been around for five years. So you can contextualize the size of that growth. We added as many customers in the last 12 months as we did in the first four years as a company. Um, so that's, that's a big piece. In terms of their interest, I don't know what Ryan would say. The biggest shift from my perspective has been moving from Bitcoin only to Bitcoin and ETH. Uh, they're very interested in Ethereum. Many financial advisors, family offices, are more interested in Ethereum than they are in Bitcoin. It's even become cool in that segment to sort of scoff at Bitcoin uh, and talk about why you love ETH. I do think they've started to move down the, the spectrum. There's more interest in uh, Layer 2 solutions. I think that's a, that's a space that resonates with folks. Um, and there's a fair amount of interest in DeFi because they know the financial services space pretty well. So stories like Uniswap and Aave uh, really, really connect with those folks. On the flip side of the spectrum, there's very little interest in NFTs. Uh, I think it's fair to say. Um, and it's hard for them to get beyond one or two layer ones. Uh, it's hard to get them interested in, in the fourth or fifth layer one, but it's hard to get me that interested in the fourth or fifth layer one. So we're not we're not that far apart.
5: I, I was, I was going to say, it's tough to know... Where that breakdown occurs, like whether it's a um, understanding the different applications that all these different blockchains could have and their different trade offs, or if it's just getting over the hump of 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 understanding like blockchain and, and technology and the innovations it can offer, and then not wanting to tackle that next time. of like, oh, there's now which one do I do I like choose and which one do I spend my time diving into, and um, that that's kind of I think. Why Bitwise is great in the sense that we can help advisors uh, understand where the market's headed um, generally, and we don't generally pick specific assets, and we can kind of help them understand like the trends. Like, yes, yeah, scaling is a big trend. That's why we're seeing Polygon and Arbitrum and Optimism and and Layer 2s like really emerge as part of the narrative, and why we're seeing alternative Layer Ones, Solana and, and Avalanche and others kind of also emerge because things cost a lot and uh, on, on Ethereum and and. Breaking down, I think, like what the differences in these different like, L1s actually means to them, like economically, is is one way we can add value and just kind of putting in layman's terms, like layer twos are reducing uh, costs. And they've definitely heard that it's really expensive to trade on Ethereum or to transact on Ethereum so they can connect to that to that thought. Um, well, I there, there was one thing that I thought. Um. I feel like I've observed over the, this past cycle um, or these past few months is that it, there's a little bit of a lag between um, what everyone's excited about, like in the crypto industry, and then where that excitement falls in the traditional market, like traditional financial participants. And I don't know; it's it's not like a full cycle behind, but it is really interesting that when Solana and um, and, and near and like all these these L1s over the past few years were like emerging and growing really quickly. Like we were still working on um, or still helping understand like what is a smart contract platform and what are, uh, you know, crypto applications built on top of, of blockchains and stuff. And so now that that base level is kind of there, I think that there's more of an appetite for other L1s, but it, there is just some level of, um, of there being a little bit like longer lag and then it staying up to speed with with the new developments just from not, allocating 100% of the time to it like we do. Yeah, I think that's that's right.
3: Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a learning curve with a lot of this stuff. Something interesting that you said, Matt, was that they're not interested in NFTs at all. Because like, I think it's funny because back from, you know, 2017, 2019, it was always like blockchain, not Bitcoin, implying that it was a technological innovation, but Bitcoin was worthless. And here it's kind of the other way around. And I think it's surprising that they're not interested in it because you see like companies like Starbucks, Meta, et cetera, understanding that but then you know, traditional financial investors, maybe, maybe not so much. But uh, anyways, uh, on another, uh, another point, I'm curious, is, is your guys' basket of assets backed by custody funds? And if so, where are they custodied at? And then on top of that, do you guys partake in the governance process in any of the you know, um, assets that you're invested in? Oh, that's,
0: that's a great question. Uh, all of our assets are custodied at third party institutional qualified custodians. So the Bitwise 10 BITW is custodied with Coinbase institutional. Our DeFi fund is custodied at Anchorage. Our Bitcoin fund is custodied at Fidelity. Um, and we do that for security. We don't lend our assets. Uh, we don't, uh, we don't stake the majority of our, or any of our assets at this point. Um, because there's added risk on there, so we just take assets and and stick them in. Ryan's
5: been close to governance, so I'll let him. Uh, I'll let him jump in on the governance front. Sure, we we definitely would love to participate in governance. I think, uh, Matt Matt spoke a little bit earlier. Is that we're a very conservative uh, asset manager, and with that comes comes the fact that we only work with certain uh, partners, and those partners uh, that we use for for custody, like Anchorage and uh, Coinbase. And such like have to be able to support participating in governance while still safely and securely storing those assets in in cold storage so there's a nuance there like technologically that's still being worked through it's definitely possible for a handful of, of assets and obviously the way things are built in crypto like once they figure it out for one governance structure they can expand that to the other assets they support that share that governance structure um but but So we are looking at it and like interested in doing it definitely with the DeFi fund as you can imagine even with with uniswap being in the bitwise 10 we do um we do you know accumulate a lot of these governance tokens one way or another um in our different funds and so there is somewhat of like a of a duty to the industry at some point right to to participate and in in governance and i think we're all like bought into web 3 at bitwise in in crypto and so we i know i i feel the want and desire to do that, um, but there's just a little bit of of not being able to quite yet in a way that that still is appropriately safe and secure. Um, but I think you know we we could eventually get there, uh, and and I'm excited about being able to you know contribute and participate kind of on the ground level. Um, I know at a personal level I'm like on those forums and in and, and there and stuff, so I'm excited for when we turn that corner um, and are able to to do it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, that's, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And even on the Uniswap to, uh, point, you know, I, I was looking at the, your, your DeFi fund and noticed it was a, about 56 or so percent of the overall fund. And I'm, I'm curious, is that uh, mostly related to like a, a market cap weighting or does that come down to just like expressing a, a more of a view on, on how you feel about these assets?
5: It's, it's a market cap uh, weighted index. So um, all of our indexes, market cap weighted indexes uh, uh, today that, that we um, support. Matt, correct me if I'm wrong there, but at least with the the DeFi fund, uh, yeah, it's based on the market cap. We don't have any caps either. A lot of indexes um, could have caps on how much could be allocated to a certain holding, but um, we generally don't cap at that. We have our methodology that Matt talked about, and if an asset passes the various elements of the methodology, uh, its percentage of the top 10 from like a market cap perspective really dictates it, its holding. Uh, and then we rebalance and reconstitute on a monthly basis for any changes. Um, but it's still based on a market cap weighted approach.
0: Although it's also true that we we or at least I love Uniswap, uh, big fan. So uh, I'm I'm happy that it has a significant weight.
3: Yeah, and you guys are diversifying your custody risk. That's so responsible for crypto. What is what are you guys doing there? <laughs> that's no, that's great to hear. Um, I think it's fair to say that on the research team over at Blockworks, we're like, kind of, we're pretty bullish on the Ethereum ecosystem and the cosmos ecosystems, like those two just like structurally seem to have two like pretty good roadmaps. Um, so I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on, on how that's playing out and where you think this, this space looks like and whether it's an ETH dominated future, a multi-chain future, a bunch of app specific chains, just love to get your thesis. Oh, I love
0: it. Ryan, you go first.
5: Cool. Um, I, so I think. I definitely came into the crypto ecosystem from like an Ethereum, uh, uh, I don't want to say maximalist, but like Ethereum was kind of like the, the blockchain that I like learned about and then became really interested in crypto. So I think um, there is an element that's hard to to shake uh, where the bias would be that that most things should consolidate back to Ethereum. Uh, I will say that I was widening my view that we would have like a many multi-chain world and. Um, during the 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 bull run, but I think it's rather obvious now in hindsight that that um there's not that that users and capital don't really want to aggregate across the different a bunch of different layer ones and and app chains. Like it's not a great user experience, and we're seeing that with like the lack of security and bridges, and having to take on risk just literally moving from blockchain to blockchain, or take on risks if you were using one app chain and going to to a different one. And so I think that uh, users aren't, are, are really not gonna like prefer that in the long run and would rather just stay in one ecosystem where um, you don't have to bridge assets, you know, from, from A to B or from app A to app B. So uh, I definitely think there's gonna be a, a, a few chains, but likely Ethereum would be the largest, um, definitely bullish on like L2s and, and scaling solutions. Um, I don't have a, a negative view of like a, a polygon and side chains um, that, that I know that some some do. Um, so I'm generally bullish on just the amount of developer and activity, um, the number of applications, the amount of capital, all of those like fundamental metrics are generally accruing to Ethereum, uh, in the, in, in the bear run mostly, but also in the bull run, we saw some big spikes. So, so yeah, I think Ethereum is probably like going to lead the way, um, for, for a long time. Cosmos is really interesting. I mean, one of the most interesting things in, in my opinion about Cosmos is that. We had the whole Luna UST blow up, which was like a Cosmos, um, a Cosmos plat, like sidechain, chain, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so, it, and yet Cosmos operated fine throughout the entire the entire implosion. Uh, still does, still still a flourishing ecosystem. And I think that's really really interesting. Um, but but yeah, yeah. I, I would just add,
0: I love that you call those two out, Sam. I would call them the the two most interesting things. A, uh, Uh, A mistake I see crypto investors making all the time is to take something like Ethereum and assume that something is 5 or 10% better on individual technological specs will overcome Ethereum's giant network effect. That's never worked in technology. If you want to replace an incumbent, you have to be 10x better, not 10% better. Or you have to have a completely different technological architecture. And that's been true. Whether you think about mobile, cloud, social, whatever technological paradigm you've been at, the incumbent always wins unless there's something that's radically better or radically different. What's appealing about Cosmos is it's radically different, right? It's a completely different architecture. I think people who try to like overclock ETH or increase throughput by X percent, I think that's largely a fool's game. Uh, but I do think those two ecosystems uh, are are interesting. And I also think it's early enough that even if you have high confidence that Ethereum is going to be the winner, it would be foolish not to diversify to some of these other interesting architectural approaches. Because even if you're wrong, uh, your risk adjusted return is better off because there's a chance that that is valuable, too. So you want some exposure there. But I, I think those are two, probably the two most interesting at the moment.
1: Yeah, Sam and I, uh, we we kind of jab about this all uh, pretty much every day. To be honest, uh, you know, he's he's definitely the eth bull in the crowd, uh, and and you know, I, I I do have the same view, right? Like it is the dominant ecosystem, just as you described. It has those network effects. It does have the user base. It has the funds. Um, but to me, like the app chain ecosystem is super exciting because it adds another design space for developers to leverage uh, with the validator network, and I, I just think that that's something we're going to see really push forward uh, in the next year. And I think DYDX is actually going to be leading that push. You know, last week we talked to Antonio, the uh, founder and CEO, uh, and he kind of gave a little bit more insight into what exactly they're doing. Uh, But I'm really excited to watch that kind of that development push forward. Um, And then, you know, I guess if we kind of think about the the crypto landscape as a whole, like what do you think is going to be the the next unlock that, that brings in that next wave of users? Is it going to be something that, that already exists and, you know, we just, haven't had the time for it to to draw that in or is there is a new innovation that's waiting to pull this next wave in
0: yeah uh i think it's going to be a new innovation but i specifically think it's going to be the combination of three different things so one of those things is increases in regulation that makes it safer for more people to mainstream into it and defines more clearly the parameters in which you can play i think that's part of it the second is throughput. If you look back at what broke in 2021, a lot of people say the Fed broke the market. A lot of people say over leveraging broke the market, but the cost to transact on ETH went from dollar to $200. You can't do much when it costs $200 to do a single transaction. So I think, I think sort of the throughput um, uh, is, is the second piece of that puzzle. And then the third piece is new applications. I don't know what those new applications will be. I think DeFi will grow. I think stable coins will grow. I think we'll get a billion NFT applications. Um, but there's so much developer activity, so much venture capital coursing through the system. When you take smart money and improving regulations and a, improving technology, you typically get something really exciting. And I think it's, you know, we could, we could speculate, but if we knew the exact app, we'd go and build it. Um, I, I look more at these preconditions, but the preconditions, Look better than they ever have in the history of crypto. The preconditions today are way better than the preconditions before DeFi Summer. They're way better before you know the launch of Ethereum. The preconditions today are just ripe for a, a, a Cambrian explosion of, of really interesting apps. Yeah,
5: I, I think that's right. Um, I, I'm really bullish on stablecoins personally. I think that that the ro- how expansive the stablecoin ecosystem has gotten um, and and how much liquidity we have in the stablecoin ecosystem across different stablecoins is really bullish for the space, especially in the cycle that we're seeing now where like everyone has moved risk off. I think in past cycles, they've moved out of the crypto ecosystem generally. And so then you have this uh, lag effect in the next bull run where like that capital has to move back into the ecosystem. But I think today it's largely just kind of like sitting, waiting on the sidelines. Um, and, and I think that that's better for that moment where we do kind of turn and see the next bull cycle take off. I think we'll have more of a uh, of a loaded spring, like ready to to release. Um, but the actual catalyst that I, I, I am most bullish about for the next cycle is it is already kind of started with NFTs and, and the transition of like viewing NFTs um not as singular uh pieces of art that you're like speculating on the price rising and dropping right um and more of their utility and functionality um I think I think Blockworks actually recently put something out that was really interesting on um dynamic nfts like Tesla came out with this like uh concept of dynamic nfts um and where where uh if you you have a car and the metadata about the car is updated over time and accrues that nft so like the mileage the uh the maintenance the year at spot right all all of that stuff kind of like a um i guess like a kelly blue book but like in a dynamic nft and you can just think about how that application like goes beyond just buying and selling profile pictures like it's an like the auto industry is is gigantic and uh to be able to start applying these these like crypto innovations in real use cases, especially with NFTs, but so we saw Reddit with their digital collectibles and we see Starbucks uh, rolling out like NFTs to their loyalty program. And then we're seeing these other use cases like um, like title insurance and, and, and uh, dynamic NFTs for vehicles or real estate or what have you. I think that's the type of stuff that's really gonna fuel this next bull market because uh, it, it takes the conversation away from speculating on price and more about, um, benefiting from the utility. And that's, for me, what helped me kind of transition into fully believing in, in, in kind of NFTs and crypto and, and like this Web3 ecosystem. And, and so, yeah, I'm excited for the general public to make that transition. I, I
0: love that. Can I test one other thing on top of what Ryan said? Because it, it got me all excited. The last thing I'm really excited about is that the space is just so small right now. Like if you remove Bitcoin, the entire space is half a trillion dollars, same size as Louis Vuitton, the parent company of Louis Vuitton. You could own all of ETH and all its alternatives and all of DeFi and all of stable coins, or you could own a manufacturer of purses and champagne. And I think when you think about that comparison and you think about all the things Ryan said about all these incredible things that could happen, you see the scale of the opportunity and you're reminded just how early it is. Sometimes if you're in crypto for a while, you look at those numbers, you're like half a trillion dollars. Wow, that's big. It's a quarter of the size of Microsoft. And it, it's equivalent to LVMH. I mean, it's still so small. And there's so many big things coming that it, it gets me pretty excited.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Now, you guys have already been super generous with your time. So I'll only ask one more question. But uh... And maybe, Ryan, I'll ask this one to you, but tokens like GMX and, you know, a couple other projects that return revenue back to their token holders have, like, fared really well in this bear market. So I'm curious if you think that's kind of where the future is headed, if you think it kind of, you know, walks the line of security, non-security, if you think that's, you know, uh, just your general thoughts there.
5: Yeah, it's definitely, I think, a narrative that that has been missing from a lot of DeFi tokens over this last cycle. Like we got so caught up in the DeFi applications, like drop governance tokens. And that's what gives them value that I think people um, have straight away from from the general understanding that like these DeFi applications are businesses like I mean, they're they're software, but they're like businesses in a way. Right. And so um, It makes sense that in order for them to continue growing, that they do need to generate some kind of cash flows and that like those cash flows should either be distributed to investors uh, like a like a dividend or used as a buyback or used to really like invest in future growth, which to me makes the most sense for these companies right now. And so uh, I think like with the Uniswap fee switch conversation kind of heating up again recently, that's a great example of where uh, there's a lot of value that can be captured here, but until. There's a way to um, to turn that pieceichuan on, and and whether that's allocated to token holders or like used to fuel growth, like we're not really seeing the full potential of Uniswap. And so I feel like that that's kind of how I feel about other tokens who are kind of embracing this like cash flow models. Like that is what is needed to get DeFi applications to go from a single use case or a single like protocol to um, multi vertical businesses that are growing and flourishing and sustainable in in the long run because. Like how else do you have a sustainable business unless you're somehow capturing part of that value and either like refueling growth either by drawing in investors or, or reinvesting in growth so i do i do appreciate that that narrative um and i don't think that just because you turn on like a fee switch it turns something into a security there's a lot of cash flow generating assets in the world that aren't security so i also think that the debate of, of whether that specific nuance like with Uniswap for example, would make it a security uh, is overblown. And so, um, yeah, it's really nuanced like space, but I'm generally supportive of uh, of wanting to, you know, turn on some kind of cash flow for token holders. I think that draws in more capital. You can use that to fuel the ecosystem. And I, if it's done right, I don't think it automatically implies that, that the token is a security.
3: Clip it. That was good. I love that answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. Matt, awesome I don't thing. know. Did you have any uh, thoughts on that topic? Or are you uh, you ready to call it?
0: I thought he nailed it. All good. Ryan got awesome.
3: it. Well, do you guys want to tell uh, people where they can find you? Sure. You can find Bitwise at
0: bitwiseinvestments.com or I'm on Twitter at Matt underscore Hogan, which is spelled funny. It's H-O-U-G-A-N.
5: Yeah, and I and I am. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Rasterly Rock. It's like Casterly Rock from Game of Thrones, but with an R, uh, no space. I also try to post a lot on LinkedIn. That's like a growing kind of crypto crypto space. So uh, you can find me over there at Ryan Rasmussen as well.
3: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for hopping on, guys. We'll uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, thanks for having us.
5: us. Thanks for having us.